Hey guys, sorry, I don't mean to go all FDR on you or anything, but here's the new deal. All the interviews are now going up first at scotthortonshow.substack.com. Of course, they'll all be going up at scotthorton.org the next day, and the archives going back to 1999 will still be free for you there at scotthorton.org. But I got to generate revenue, you know. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys. Introducing Joe Kent. He's running for Congress in the 3rd District in Washington State. A former CIA officer and former Green Beret. And uh, famously um, widower of uh, his wife who was killed in the dirty war in Syria and uh, self-identified America Firster. Welcome to the show, Joe. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks so much for having me. I uh, really appreciate you joining us here. Now, um, I'm really tied up in nonprofits, so I'm not really interested in a lot of electioneering stuff. I am just uh, want to talk about the issues with you here. And obviously, first and foremost, foreign policy. So, um, can we start with what you, uh, I saw you a few months ago on the Tucker Carlson show, explain how you went from being a Green Beret to being part of the anti-war right. And I wonder if you could kind of take us through that story here a little bit to start. Yeah, I mean, it's been quite the journey. You know, I, growing up, all I ever wanted to do was join the army and go do commando stuff. That was kind of my, uh, my goal as a kid, you know, watching GI Joe. And then as I got older, reading history, uh, seeing that there was always people that went forward and, and fought for our country. I mean, I was a, was a true believer. I still believe we need people to step forward and, and defend our nation. Um, so I enlisted right away in 1998. There was no wars going on. Went right to Second Ranger Battalion, um, and then was actually in the process of becoming a Green Beret when the attacks of September 11th happened. So, that pretty much set the uh, the course for the rest of my career. I did 11 combat deployments. Um, I kind of had my, I would say my my awakening um, probably on my first Iraq. Well, I, I this started my awakening on my first Iraq deployment. Um, we could see very early on that there, there really wasn't any WMDs. I mean, by 2004, it was really painfully evident there wasn't any WMDs. And as the more we got to know the Iraqis, that's one of the big jobs you do as a Green Beret is you, is you work heavily with local populations. The more I got to know Iraqis, I realized that our our entire plan of occupying that country, uh, firing pretty much anybody who knew how to run the nation that was associated with the Ba'ath Party, which was most people who really understood how to do anything as far as uh, civil society went. Um, we, we did that with a you know blanket statement of debathification. Uh, I was on the ground level when that happened. We were in the midst of trying to demobilize anti-Saddam militias into an Iraqi army. And we actually had a lot of former Iraqi army officers there. But when Paul Bremer and those clowns said the whole, hey, you, if you were in the Ba'ath Party, you can't be part of the government anymore. Me and a lot of my uh, friends and uh, comrades on the ground, we sent up reports to hire saying like, hey, this is a really bad idea. Um, but, you know, I figured, hey, what do I know? I'm just some Sergeant Green Beret. I'm, I'm 
sure the Pentagon and the CIA and all these other smart people have a have a bigger plan that I'm just not seeing. And as the years went on, I saw that we really just didn't have a plan. But it became very clear to me. I, I was always puzzled as to why we were trying to build a, a uh, enduring presence over there. I thought the mission was simple, that we were going to take out Saddam because Saddam was a bad guy. And as that – I mean Saddam was a bad guy, but the links to al-Qaeda and the WMD, as that all faded away, it became clear to me that the whole, the whole idea was just to stay in Iraq because this was a great way for the military industrial complex and for our politicians to make a lot of money um, and, and to really retain power and to constantly have this narrative of war and crisis. Um, so I, I got pretty disenfranchised with uh, obviously Bush. I was a Republican. I voted for Bush twice. Uh, and then I, I really kind of found Ron Paul and really uh, his the way the, the stances that he took really appealed to me as far as foreign policy went. I wasn't I, I don't think I was fully in with, hey, we don't need to be intervening anywhere because I was still in the midst of, you know, trying to run down terrorists uh, on my deployments. But the, the longer that that went on, it always seemed like even if we had a legitimate reason for going after a terrorist in in country X. The overall goal was to get us to stay there even longer. And, you know, Trump was the first politician I saw that really started to call this out. Um, so that's kind of my evolution really has been I, I wish I could come on your show um, and defend the wars and say, hey, like, no, you, you just don't understand the big picture. We were really defending the country. Had we not done these things, America would have been attacked multiple times over. I, I wish I could say that. But at the end of the day, when I look back at, at what we did um, and how much we lost and, and just the impact that had on the region and our country, I can't say that. So for me, it's, it's just a uh, it, it's coming from a stance of just realism that we never benefit from these wars. Our nation never benefits from these wars. Yeah. All right. Now, so take me through your career a little bit here. So you're a Green Beret. I, I think you pretty much implied you were in Afghanistan and Iraq War II there, uh, clearly Iraq War II. But then uh, what about Syria? Were you there? Uh, during that time or only your wife was there and at what time are you leaving the army and joining the CIA and in sure. what capacity there you're like special activities division paramilitary for CIA and yes. or and doing what so I was a uh, paramilitary operations officer so I went through the the formal training of you know the farm to be an operations officer but then with my background in special operations uh, I was, you know, special activities center, ground branch. Um, so I, I was only there for about a year. That was going to be my second career. I retired from the military in 2018 um, and then went like, so retired on a Friday and swore in on a, on a Monday. Pretty, I mean, it sounds, uh, I think, kind of unique, but for guys with my, my, uh, my resume, it's actually pretty standard. Um, so went over there. Uh, I, I deployed to Northern Africa um, real, real briefly. It takes a while to get through the training for, for paramilitaries and actually be selected for it. Um, so my career was definitely cut short after my wife was in Syria during the, the, I guess, the, whatever you want to call the, the counter ISIS mission. So I, I spent a lot of time in Iraq. I actually, despite spending six months learning Pashtun, I uh, never went to Afghanistan despite my best efforts. I okay. did, uh, I did about nine Iraq tours. I did twice. I went to Yemen twice and then some stuff in Northern Africa. And what um, years so were you in Yemen, by the way? I was in Yemen uh, in 2010 and in early 2011. So I was there right before the Saleh regime fell. And then I went back uh, in 2017 briefly. Uh-huh. And then, well, not to get too far diverted onto that, but in 2017 you're there. At that point you're killing Houthis or you're doing limited missions against AQAP guys still? So we were heavily monitoring the Houthi fight. Um, the, you know, the, the UAE... And the, the coalition the UAE had built was probably doing the most heavy lifting against the Houthis with the 
um, whatever you want to call the Yemeni government that was cobbled together. But it was really the Emiratis that were doing the vast majority of that. So we were monitoring that, providing limited intelligence. Um, but the AQAP was still, I would say, the uh, the biggest mission focus in 2017. Same thing, 2010, 2011, the Houthi thing. Uh, unfortunately, blindsided a lot of folks in D.C., although those of us on, that were there on the ground, we kind of we saw that that uh, kind of take uh, really gain a lot of traction. Mm-hmm. So then I guess this must have been right before the UAE went ahead and integrated AQAP into their militia and renamed them the Giants Brigade, right? Yeah, I mean, there was always a lot of that. I mean, it, it was hard to tell the difference between uh there were so many different groups. There's Ansar al-Sharia. There was uh, AQAP. ISIS at the time was a very popular brand name from how successful they had been, uh, you know, 2014 through 2016, 2017. So there was like a, a, a group of guys out there calling themselves ISIS. But I, I sort of think that they were just aspirationally ISIS because it was a neat name. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, Yemen is a Yemen, like a lot of the Middle East, it's a bunch of different warring tribes that will switch allegiances pretty quickly. The the only good thing about the Emiratis is they understood this because they understood the culture better than we did. And so, yeah, did they 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 most certainly integrated elements of of Al Qaeda because those Al Qaeda guys probably saw that they were on the losing side, and so they wanted to hedge their bets. I mean, just we saw this with the Ambar Awakening uh, in Iraq as well. So just the same the same old story. Mm. Okay, so. Back to Syria for a second, and I don't want to like dwell on your personal tragedy here, but I think it's important to your yeah, story yeah, yeah, here, right? Is. is by the time is am I correct? By the time your wife was deployed to Syria, it was already the war Iraq War Three, essentially against the Caliphate, rather than yeah. during the time of building up the Caliphate before they changed their mind. Yeah, exactly. So I, I was deployed uh, to Iraq in 2016 as part of the counter counter ISIS fight um, under Obama. Like it was, a, it was a horrible deployment. Like we were over there, we lost people, we were getting shot at, but we didn't have uh, the authorities or really the initiative to go and take out ISIS. Uh, it was it was kind of a just you're sort of there deployment, which was the hallmark of Obama deployments. Really, um, Trump came in and Trump said, "Let's drop the hammer on ISIS." We basically eliminated the ISIS threat uh, throughout most of 2017 in Iraq. By 2018, they were on the run in Syria. My my late wife, she was a uh, a Navy cryptologist. She she spoke Arabic fluently, several dialects. Uh, this was her fifth combat deployment with special operations. So she was deployed right after Thanksgiving of 2018. Now at the time. ISIS only controlled a handful of villages. They were on the ropes. So she was over there and her her task force, the task force she was a part of, they captured the last couple of villages from ISIS. And that's when Trump uh, said, hey, I, I ran on getting us out of these endless wars after we crushed ISIS. We just took away all the ground that ISIS controls. This is a great time to pack it up and fulfill my commitment to the American people. And so he released um, he released official formal orders. I, I mean, I saw those. I was in the in the CIA at the time. But then he also put out a, you know, a series of tweets saying that, hey, we're, we're, we're done. We met our objective and now we're getting out of Syria, which I thought was very remarkable because, you know, I, I watched the Syria drama unfold basically from 2014 on. And there was, yeah, there was the ISIS threat. But the, the, the military industrial complex, the national security state, they, for some reason, really wanted to use this as a reason to stay in Syria and to do another regime change war 
against Assad. Um, I, because these people just love failure. I mean, we had just gotten done with Saddam and, and Gaddafi and all that. Um, but that was the, that was the goal. And so when Trump gave those orders, um, I mean, I was in the CIA, I, I had access to all the classified systems and I saw just the uproar from mid to senior level officials in the intelligence community, state department, DOD, they were furious at Trump. Um, and unfortunately, Trump didn't have enough loyal people in his national security staff to really make those orders happen. And so they were my my wife and her her element. They had orders to get on a plane and be out of there by Christmas Eve of 2018. Bureaucratic slow roll left them there um, really kind of without a mission. And so she tragically, ultimately, her and three other Americans were killed in January uh, by a suicide bomber, you know, just because because we didn't have the will to get out of the country and because we wanted to continue to make it look like there was some huge need for us to continue to be in Syria. And that and that mission, unfortunately, continues to this day. Well, isn't it the case that the true mission now is keeping wheat and oil out of the hands of the national government there? Yeah, you know, I mean, that'd be a mission. I, I maybe. But I think really we're just there and we're trying to every now and again, you see CENTCOM put out a press release that we, you know, us and our partners killed Abu whoever, who was like the number four guy and like what now is ISIS. Um, it just seems like the military is really good at doing what it knows how to do. And for the last 20 years, we've been doing these, like we go and build a little partner force of Kurds and some other guys. And, and then we go run intelligence networks and we, and we kill low level terrorists. Um, so I think that's the overall what's happening there is that the, the military just continues this cycle of rotations and it's very valuable because it's the only combat rotation right now. And so people are making their careers there, but yeah, there still is. I mean, you're probably correct. I'm, I'm definitely not going to argue with you there. there. There probably is a, an element that's still trying to make Assad's life as difficult as possible because there's deeply entrenched people. Um, like I said, that are unfortunately in love with this whole idea of, of getting rid of Assad. All right. Now, I know you already said, and, and it's on the records on your website, how bad you wanted it out of Afghanistan. And boy, do I agree. I opposed it all along from the first day before the invasion. I wrote a book about why to get the hell out. But I also said, hey, 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 I am not saying get out so we can pivot to Eastern Europe or to Eastern Asia. I'm saying come home. And there were a lot of people who said, yeah, let's get out of Afghanistan so we can free up our resources to make worse trouble elsewhere. So let's start with Eastern Europe, because I know I pretty much like your point of view on that from what I've heard so far. And I want to hear, you know, what your position is and what you think the Republican Party's position is. I and mean, frankly, if you are elected, you could be a very influential uh, and and uh, powerful member of the House and, you know, as a veteran, especially leading the way in saying, forget tough, let's be smart and not do all this stuff. You know, like only Nixon can go to China. Only Reagan can negotiate an end to the Cold War with the commies. Only a guy like you can say enough of this already from a point of view of been there and back a bunch of times as we're talking about here. But so let's start with Russia because. Um, this is obviously the one that we're in the middle of a proxy war with them right now. And yeah. I would like to know your take. I know everybody would like to hear your take. Yeah. I mean, we've, uh, the, the way that we've gone about this, we've taken away so many options because we've gone so all in on pushing a conflict with Russia. 
Now, when this whole thing started, I mean, I think we had a lot of options. We could have uh, done mild sanctions against Russia. Um, we could have given the Ukrainians a limited amount of a limited amount of aid, um, but we didn't do that. We just immediately said, "Hey, we're going to go all in with this proxy war." We're essentially, I mean, I, I feel like yeah, it's a proxy war. But when you have the president of the United States saying that this man Vladimir Putin can't remain in power, you've got Lindsey Graham saying, "Wouldn't it be nice if somebody assassinated Putin?" Members of Congress saying that we're at war. Um, I mean, I, you can only you can only conclude that we are at war with Russia, and the amount of money that we've thrown at this problem. I mean, I think we're over a hundred billion by now. Lend lease uh, going over there, allowing them to have access to whatever military equipment they want. The fact that the intelligence community is bragging that our targeting data is going to kill Russian generals. Um, I mean, at that point, once you're declaring these things, you're basically not even in a proxy war anymore. So I, I think things are, are, are going horribly um, by all accounts, really. I mean, the only person that's benefiting from any of this is Zelensky and probably his inner circle. And then, of course, the U.S. military industrial complex. Um, we really haven't made Putin much worse for the wear if that was our goal in the first place, which I, I mean, I would disagree with that goal. Um, but the, the thing is we need to be using every bit of leverage that we have right now to get Zelensky and to get Putin to the negotiating table. And I think we have a, a limited window to make that happen. Now, the more rhetoric that comes from DC about how under no circumstances will we negotiate. And then we pressure Zelensky to say the exact same thing, or I'm not sure if we're there, there's people that debate and say that we, we didn't actually make Zelensky step away from the negotiating table. I, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting uh, discussion to have, but at the end of the day, Zelensky just loves this tough guy talk. Um, but we have, I, I think we still are the senior partner in our relationship with Ukraine. And this is a point where I'd like to say to Zelensky, look, man, we've given you enough. Um, I was against giving you a lot of it, but if you want, if you want the hope of getting one more penny for us, from us, you will sit down at the negotiating table with Vladimir Putin. And I think Putin, as long as we approach it right, it, I think he'd be willing to sit down at the negotiating table too because he is he's done so before but also because look the war is just not going well for Vladimir Putin it's funny you you, you know you hear from the the regime media that like Putin is both at the same time he's about ready to take over all of Europe so we have to fight him right now in eastern Ukraine because any minute now he's going to march on France um, but then at the same time we hear he's just like an incompetent buffoon um, I think by all the data we've seen from how the Russian military is performing it's not going very well for them so I think the whole like we have to fight them right now uh, rhetoric it just lacks any kind of data so I think Putin is looking for an off ramp if, if we extend him an off ramp that he can get honorably um, I think he'll take it. I think if we say you get at the negotiating table too, and we can start giving you some 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 degree of sanctions relief, we can guarantee that Ukraine will never become part of NATO. Um, what do you say? Sit down. Let's talk at the table because what we need to do right now is alleviate the killing and then stop any of these tensions that are going on right now. Because by Biden's own description, we're, we're closer now to a nuclear war than we've been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we really, at this this moment of crisis, we just need sober people whose goal is to not have a nuclear exchange. Yeah. Hey, y'all, Scott here. Let me tell you about Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc. Who knew? Artificial bank credit expansion leads to price inflation and terribly distorted markets. If you've got any savings left at all, you need to protect them. You need to put some, at least, into precious metals. Well, Roberts and Roberts can set you up with the best deals on silver, gold, platinum, and palladium. And they've been doing this since 1977. Hey, if you just need some sound advice about sound money, they're there for you too. Call Tim Fry and the guys at 800-874-9760. 
That's 800-874-9760. Or check them out at rrbi.co. That's rrbi.co. You'll be glad you did. Hey, y'all. They've got great deals on weed at thehempspot.com. The Hemp Spot specializes in Delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol instead of Delta-9, so they can send it straight to you anywhere in America. Recently, a friend moved and didn't have a guy in his new town, but then he heard about thehempspot.com on my show and was saved, figuratively and literally, because if you use the promo code SCOTT, you get 15% off every order and free shipping on any order over $100. Legal jams, bud, gummies, and the rest in your state. TheHempSpot.com. Spell V-T-H-C. You guys, my friend Mike Swanson has written such a great revisionist take on the early history of the post-World War II national security state and military-industrial complex in the Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy years. It's called The War State. I have to say, it's the most convincing case I've read that Kennedy had truly decided to end the Cold War before he was killed. In any case, I know you'll love it. The War State by Mike Swanson. All right, now, but so there's this huge moral panic going on here. You understand that Putin is Adolf Hitler and you cannot right. appease him or you're Neville Chamberlain giving into yep. evil and it's unconditional surrender. That's the American way. And don't tell me you're on Putin's side and this kind of thing. It's just exactly like it was 20 years ago with, I mean, imagine how absurd it is to pretend that Americans any of them are partisans of Saddam Hussein or are partisans of Vladimir Putin. But that's the argument. You must be on his side if you disagree with the Twitter swarm, as John Robb calls it. So how are you going to handle that? How are you handling that? And how do you plan on handling that if you have a role in the decision-making here? It's clear that the Republican Party is going to win the House of Representatives, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, at this point, like I just ignore it. I've been called it already so much because I, I, I dared question, number one, our, our continued presence in the Middle East. But then I also questioned, especially, uh, do we need to be risking a nuclear war for the, the Russian-speaking eastern border of Ukraine? So I mostly just ignore it. Um, if, I, if I get pressed on it, I do you know, present my bona fides that, hey, I've gone and I've fought for these things. And most of the people that are very, very vocal – uh, about sending people like me off to go fight and die, they they never bother to go risk their lives. They never hear shots fired in anger, and they most certainly don't send their kids off to go fight in these wars. So uh, I can usually present that trump card. And, and of course, you know, if you're a veteran and you have my opinion, then if you have my opinion and Tulsi Gabbard's opinion, then our service doesn't matter. Um, but that's just that's just the way it is. Really, I think we have a unique opportunity right now because I do think there's a lot of buyer's remorse. Um, with elected officials, Republicans and Democrats, for how all in we went uh, with this war, if if for no other reason that we're in uh, economic dire straits right now in our own country, and the American people who frankly don't follow war or foreign policy, they are saying, hey, why in the hell are you idiots sending billions of dollars to some place I can't find on a map that I don't care about when our own southern border <clears throat> isn't secure and we can't get enough baby formula on the shelf. And so I think there's a lot of elected officials that have had to actually start to answer for that, which is a very good thing. And it's an opportunity to say, hey, look, let's let's figure a way out of this. Um, number one, to prevent a nuclear war. But I was uh, encouraged, uh, you know, maybe it was only I was only encouraged for about four hours. But when the House Progressive Caucus put forward that letter, basically, and the letter was great. I mean, I think they, they outlined the 
case perfectly as to why we need to start moving towards a ceasefire and really limiting a lot of the aid that we're sending to Zelensky. But then unfortunately, they uh, they chickened out and Biden or somebody yelled at them and they had to rescind that letter. But if we take the majority, I do really want to reach out to the House Progressive Caucus and say, hey, look, I know you guys don't agree with me probably on 99 percent of issues, but this is important. And you know it's important. Like you guys wrote that and you're right and you know you're right. So let me let let us work together. Let's let, let's make this a actual bipartisan, like a real true bipartisan effort that I think potentially someday will be looked back on in history that we, we prevented an, you know, a nuclear conflict. And I can't think of anything more important to be bipartisan about. Yeah. All right. Well, look, so now we have to squabble a little bit here because sure. um, as well, the editorial director of antiwar.com, for one thing, my most important job in life really is to try to get right-wingers to be anti-war and you know you mentioned ron paul earlier and that's a good way to butter me up make me feel like i like it because i'm like the number two leader of the ron paul fan club after dan mcadams or something um and maybe number three including you know his wife um so that's all nice and everything but you know Donald Trump never even knew what America first meant. That goes back to the America first committee that hated FDR and wanted to stay out of world war two. And they're smeared of course, because Charles Lindbergh had said some pretty horrible anti-Semitic things, um, which reflected bad on the whole group unfairly. And of course, after Pearl Harbor, that was the end of that. The only reason Donald Trump ever talked about it is because David Sanger at the New York times suggested it to him because he was trying to hang Charles Lindbergh around his neck like some albatross and make a fool out of Trump. But the problem was for David Sanger, no one ever heard of Charles Lindbergh, not even the famous aviator, never mind the anti-Semitic comments that he had made in opposition to entry into World War II. And so it didn't have that effect on anyone of making Trump look like a pro-Hitler guy or some kind of thing, which is what David Sanger was trying to do. But the point is that to Donald Trump, there was no heritage here that he was building this philosophy off of. He got the term from his enemy, David Sanger, the liar in the New York Times, who's been claiming for 20 years that the Ayatollah is about to make a nuke or something, among a lot of other things. So now there's a whole generation of America first conservative Republicans. But, you know, I think you must have noticed in a lot of cases that just means you're good on Russia, but bad on China. Or maybe you're good on Syria, but you're bad on Iran. Or, or maybe maybe America firster just means Tea Party. And Tea Party just means Republicans. And at the end of the day, you're all a bunch of George W. Bushes when it comes down to it. Now, I'll cut you a little slack here because on your website, you say a bunch of horrible stuff about China. Absolutely just unforgivable errors. But at the same time, you say... I really think we need to get out of Afghanistan. So then I think, well, maybe you just haven't updated your website in a while and you must have thought hard about it and thought better of we should have an absolute trade war with China, that we should outlaw American corporations doing business with China, that we should essentially have a nuclear war with China instead of with Russia, which is the way I read your website right now. Yeah, well, I mean, I think China's exploiting, you know, our economy. Um, so I, I do think China's the number one existential threat as far as foreign countries go um, to us right now. I mean, they're they're involved in a in a trade war, and, and really, how's a trade the war an existential why, threat? 
Well, I mean, they control the vast majority of U.S. manufacturing. Uh, they have deep ties right? into Wall Street. Well, they have the potential right now of crashing our economy um, by challenging our status as a prime reserve currency holder. Now, a lot of that's self-inflicted because of our horrible fiscal policies. Um, but I, I don't think we have any business allowing China to actively you know, compete in our markets. Uh, I just think we need to be self-sufficient um, and not reliant on, on China and not allowing foreign labor, especially from China, to undercut U.S. labor. Yeah, but don't you see how by completely cutting off economic interdependence with China, we're destroying the major incentive for keeping the peace for the long term. You're talking about a sixth of the population of the world. This planet's not big enough for them and us at the same time. That's crazy. We made peace with them 50 years ago, Joe. 50 years ago. Now you want to start a fight? I just want us to restore the balance and I want us to have fair trade, not free, not free trade. But the, the, that relationship is just completely off balance. I mean, right fair now. trade, I mean, that's what the commies say. Let the government decide who's allowed to trade with who. What the hell are you talking about, fair trade? Come on. Well, you have to fair, know that this is it, bogus, it, man. China is not a threat to the United States of America. They're deeply intertwined with our elite. I mean, the way that China is able to exploit our trade system, our so-called free market. I mean, we've, we essentially shipped the vast majority of our manufacturing base over there. China is the dominant, uh, I'd say. They, they essentially run global trade, and that's because of – and we pay for global trade. We, we are the security guarantors for it. Um, we're, we're underwriting this entire global system, but the funny thing is we're the ones that need it the least here in this country. We could be 100 percent self-sufficient and put our people and our workers first, but instead – we have this off-balance system where we rely on China, but our elite benefit from China, but yet the working class get absolutely nothing out of this whole exchange other than cheap crap from Walmart. Yeah, but you're conflating totally different things. I mean, you're talking about there's corruption in American politics and possibly unbalanced trade deals that could be rewritten versus we should just have autarky and, be, and not have global trade. I mean... At all? Or what? Should we do the same thing with Europe and with Canada? No, because Canada and Europe, they don't behave in the way that the Chinese Communist Party does. Between currency manipulation, intellectual property theft. Like, look, if China can behave better, then certainly we can have trade with them. Um, but we, we shouldn't be beholden to them. They shouldn't have as much power as they do because of they, because they control you know the manufacturing of so many critical things that we need. And that, that capability needs to be onshored back here, not just for our national security, but also to provide jobs for our people. Yeah. You also have, uh, you include on your website here, the bogus claim that the Chinese have been inflicting genocide against their people, clearly a reference to the hoax perpetrated by Adrian Zenz and the China lobby that the people of the Xinjiang province are being murdered being sterilized and mass and all these things when he's already had to retract that crap you know what they said they said that oh look at the statistics 87 percent of all the iud's being implanted in chinese women are all being implanted in the uyghur women see they're sterilizing them all but then they had to admit that nope their math problem was done incorrectly and it's actually eight percent in other words, in no indication of any sterilization program against those people. What so effing 
ever. This is exactly like Saddam Hussein's giant human shredder that he throws all his opponents in. Babies on bayonets and babies on the floor and all the stolen incubators. Show me the mass graves from a genocide in Western China. There ain't no such thing. It's a bunch of war propaganda, and it's used essentially, and look what you're doing. You're, this is part of the exact narrative that they use against David Koresh or Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi or Bashar al-Assad or against Vladimir Putin. Look at the unmitigated evil of the, this horrible, the Communist Party and Chairman Xi and all the claims about their sins that are always so far out of proportion to the reality of the situation. And you're turning what you describe as like a trade imbalance problem, uh, a, a intellectual property problem, all of a sudden is now a national security threat against a genocidal hegemon bestriding the world, which is comic book nonsense. It's America's Navy, as you well know, that rules the seven seas, not China. It's America that has the dominant trade relationship with all of the other major powers of the world, like in Europe, for example, not China. Isn't that right? No, China. China has a dominant trade relationship with us, and we are paying for security on the on the high seas, um, and we don't necessarily need that because we can produce things here. Now, look, I mean, China with their their whatever there was the one child policy. I mean, look, China does bad things. I'm not trying to come up with a justification for us doing some sort of a an intervention. I would like to prevent that. China's fighting us at an economic level, and it's just simply time for us to fight back and to put our country first. That's my my only beef with China. I, I am very much against any kind of military conflict with China. They're fighting us economically. We need to strengthen our dollar to make sure that they can't take down our, our status as the prime reserve currency holder. Everything we've done in Russia is just driving driving the consolidation of the Eurasian landmass, Russia and China, to make our dollar even weaker. And that's mostly self-inflicted by by us. Yeah. So I, I do think it's it's a trade war, but I do think it's a, it is an existential national security threat how deeply intertwined we are with China. Well, what about Taiwan? Well, with Taiwan, I mean, the biggest – the reason why Taiwan is a big deal is because, again, globalization, we allowed the manufacturing and production of advanced microchips and semiconductors to go to Taiwan. I mean, it's Silicon Valley West. The only, the only reason Taiwan is important to the world is because of that factor right there. Um, so I think we need to aggressively onshore that capability as fast as possible. And then, look, there's a lot of regional actors. There's a lot of other countries there that don't they're not comfortable with China being aggressive. We can give them a limited amount of support um, so that China would think that there's, hey, there's going to be a cost if we go over here and, and take out Taiwan. But I, I do think the main fight is economic against China. China's smart. I don't think China wants to fight us in a kinetic way. Biden's made us weak enough on the world stage that maybe maybe he will take a swipe at uh, at Taiwan. Again, I don't think that's worth risking a you know a conflict over. Um, I But I, I I do believe that the the fight's going to be economic. China's getting essentially everything they want right now while we shoot ourselves in the foot with this rapid transition to green energy, while we stay beholden to their manufacturing lines, while we throw these buffoonish sanctions at Russia, consolidating the, the Eurasian landmass's economy. I mean, the petrodollar's at risk right now because they see how weak we are and China's now starting to buy petro with yuan. Again, like why do we even need OPEC's <clears> – <throat> why do we even need OPEC at all? We should be pumping our own oil and natural gas here in America. Mm. Well, listen, I think especially it's smart what you say about it doesn't make sense for the U.S. Navy to be subsidizing the security needs of every other nation's trade on Earth. And that's part of American hegemony. But I agree with you 
that that's a hell of a lot of cost for very little return that we get from that other than essentially that the the threat that in the future we could shut off trade to our enemies and friends alike you know if it comes down to it and that kind of thing but that's the kind of power the united states of america shouldn't be wielding in the first place so i really think and and for that matter i would agree with you too that they shouldn't even be i think this you're essentially implying too the Navy shouldn't be providing security for Walmart to offshore all of their crap to China either. China, Walmart and American corporations, they should have to pay for their own damn security and not, you know, socialize their costs onto others. It could be right there that that margin alone of them just hi- having to hire some mercs to keep the pirates off would be enough for them to go ahead and keep rubber made here instead of shipping it there. But, you know, I, so anything like that where... We're making it, the government is making it easier for corporations to offshore at the expense of good American jobs, something like that. Then I'm definitely for stopping doing those things, subsidizing them to do that. Restricting them is another matter, but I'll leave it at that. But, um, you know, uh, I think it's important that, you know, just from kind of the big picture expense here, Joe, that you understand you know, especially, and it looks, I haven't checked all the polls, but it seems pretty likely you're going to be a congressman here, that we haven't had a Ron Paul up there, even Rand, in, uh, we haven't had Ron there since 2012. And that's somebody yeah. who has the courage to sit there and say, no, all of this is wrong. And of course, the genius of Ron Paul is that he's a conservative Texas Republican. And he says, you don't have to believe in this stuff, man, come on. Everybody knows that the truth is this. Sound economics, Austrian school economics, and non-interventionist foreign policy, and making it all okay. Now, Ron was a flight surgeon in the Air Force in his day. You're, as you say, 11 times deployed special operations officer here, been to the war, and then some, and back. Please do what you can to make the most of that in the best anti-war sense. Uh, Forget anything you thought about the anti-war movement had to come from the left, had to be associated with hippies or with Jane Fonda and Michael Moore and all of that (laughs) old thinking stuff. It has to be led by guys like you, the guys like Dan McKnight at Bring Our Troops Home. But it's, you know, it's very difficult for us regular folks out here to be able to really count on a guy like you to say, you know, come on, former CIA too, you know, I know they're saying you still work for the CIA. Come on, I'm not challenging you on that. But I'm just saying that, um, you know, don't let us down, man. We need you to stand up to the military industrial complex in the kind of way that a guy, pretty much only a guy with your background can and get away with. No, absolutely. I, I fully agree. And I will not let you guys down. I mean, I have my my strong convictions uh, from experience. So I'm I'm looking forward to going and, and fighting on behalf of the American people and not not continuing to double and triple down on the on the failures that we've uh, been a part of for the last at least two, three decades. Great. And by the way, the Iranians ain't making nuclear weapons. And anytime you need a good briefing on that, I'll explain it to you so that you'll never have okay. to feel pressured to fall for that propaganda. All right. Sounds good. Okay, great. Thank you for your time, Joe. I'm only hard on you because I think that you're in a really great position to do a lot of important stuff. And I just trying to have whatever small amount of influence for the positive that I can here. I really appreciate it, Scott. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Good luck to you. Yep, take care.
The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSRadio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.